the classic 1739 hymn written by Charles Wesley, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. It opens with Wesley's picture of the angels proclaiming the birth of Christ to the shepherds in the fields. Now we have to note this detail. Luke chapter 2, that account of this event doesn't actually say the angels sang, but rather they proclaimed. But in Wesley's famous hymn, he calls us to rejoice in the glory of God come to earth. And he says famously, Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king, peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. And then the chorus simply says over and over again, Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. And so the angels are, are crying out, the glory of the newborn king, Jesus Christ, that he's worthy of our praise, worthy of glory. And the very angels that he commands, that he created, are the ones who are shouting out this message. And they should know of his glory. They've been with Christ since their very creation. Now, as you know, we've been walking through John 17, the great high priestly prayer of Jesus Christ. And in our introductory message just a couple of weeks ago, We saw the depth and the complexity of this text. We saw that it can be divided into a a three-part structure. It can be divided into a seven-part structure. Or it can be taken topically because of the richness of repetition. And this is why we wanted to read it through all the way 14 times throughout this series so that it really enriches itself into your heart. And so we have seen that the overriding theme in this prayer concerns the certainty of salvation from sin for the believer in Christ, that the Christian can have, that we can possess, that we can enjoy assurance of salvation. And so we decided to examine John 17 topically, going to the various topics in here in the series we're calling Blessed Assurance. And our goal, very simply, is to extract from the words of Christ what we're calling objective evidence that we can, in fact, have assurance of salvation. That assurance can't be based on your emotion, can't be based on your experience, can't be based on some spiritual thing that may or may not have happened to you. And certainly, even your own sin habits can rob you of assurance. And so we need evidence that's outside of ourselves. We need evidence that's divine. Now, last week, we looked at the evidence of the Father's glory And like the famous lines of Hark the Herald Angels Sing, we want to have blessed assurance today because of the Son's glory. That the glory of the Son of God gives us assurance of salvation. You already noted that in John 17, Jesus speaks of his own glory numerous times. He opens his prayer with his very first request, glorify your Son. And similarly in verse 5, glorify me, he says, But those two requests are are really quite different. They're different appeals. The first one, verse 1, glorify your son, is speaking of that which must happen. Verse 1, because the hour has come. This is speaking of the cross of Jesus Christ, which glorifies the son in his obedience, his willingness to lay down his life for the sake of his father's will and for the sake of all, all who would be saved in Christ. But the second request Verse 5 is very different in nature. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. This isn't a request for glory through the cross. This is for a request for glory after the cross, for a return to former glory. There are several other places in John 17 in which Jesus speaks of his glory. We're going to work our way back to those in a little while. Now, like last time, basically I have one point to make. And so to keep us from preaching for three minutes, we want to really go through some detail here. But the one point we have to make concerning our assurance of salvation is because of the Son's glory. But what is the Son's glory? Well, we want to take some time and kind of build that understanding. And so I want to just give you several ways for us to understand the Son's glory. And first, we're going to look at the history of the Son's glory. The history of the glory of the Son of God, and we'll work our way back to the text in John 17. And what we're going to do under this major heading of the history of the Son's glory is I'm just going to assign some labels to help us organize our thoughts. So we'll start right here in John 17, and then we'll go to some other places in the Bible. But here's our first label under the heading of the history of the Son's glory. We'll call this label 
the prehistory glory of Christ. The prehistory glory of Christ. And we've already read this. Verse 5, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. This is intriguing. This means that before the Bible starts, essentially, something was happening in which Christ had glory. Jesus possessed perfect glory with the Father and with the Spirit for all eternity past. He never had a beginning. In heaven, Jesus enjoyed a throne room. Verse uh, Chapter 4 of Revelation says it sparkles like jewels and it's surrounded by an emerald rainbow. And from the throne came flashes of lightning and peals of thunder. The Spirit of God lit up the throne room as with torches and the floor appeared to be like a sea of glass. And at some point prior to the creation of the world, Colossians 1.16 says that Jesus Christ created thrones and dominions and rulers and authorities. And specifically earlier in the same verse in Colossians 1.16, these are beings which are invisible. Now, who are these invisible beings? Well, we can't be completely dogmatic about it, but almost certainly the only good choice is referring to the realm of angels. Thrones. The idea of lead rulers, dominions, literally in Greek, lordships. And then rulers and authorities are most often associated with the one-third of the angels who would rebel eventually and follow Satan into sin. But in any case, Jesus is clearly the creator and the Lord of all the angels. And this is before Genesis 1.1. And many of these angels from prehistory, from from a time we can't even fathom have been flying and shouting day and night the glory of God as recorded in Isaiah's vision of Isaiah 6. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. But here's the surprise information we get in John chapter 12 that the one seated on the throne to whom the angels are singing holy, holy, holy is none other than Jesus Christ forever and ever and ever in eternity past. Jesus came to earth. He didn't originate on earth. He came from a glory that's incomprehensible to us except for a few little pictures that we receive. He was always in the eternal presence of the Father and has always possessed this glory. A thousand years before creation, a million years before creation, a billion years before creation, a trillion years before creation. Oh, wait a minute. The creation of the universe is that thing by which we measure time. So before time even started, the Son of God was the Son of God in glory. He shared in, he has partaken of, he has exuded the essential glory of everlasting God. Hebrews 1 verse 3 says he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Radiance is a word that means the brightness, the brilliance, and it's from a Greek root that means the dawning. That Jesus Christ is the dawning of the glory of God. The break of day. To use some theological words, Jesus has always been consubstantial with the Father, meaning of the same substance as the Father, He's always been co-equal with the Father, meaning that he is the same quality as the Father. And he's always been co-eternal of the same infinite nature as the Father. He's consubstantial. He's co-equal. He's co-eternal. In fact, those are the exact concepts that the Apostle John began our gospel with here. John 1.1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus Christ, the Word of God, always has been He has always been with God, and he has always been God. In fact, uh, Darren read this earlier. God the Father addressing the Son says in Hebrews 1.8, but of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. So into eternity past, never having a beginning, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit have enjoyed perfect communion and fellowship together in love and peace and joy and glory and beauty. So in our text here, when Jesus refers to the glory he had with the Father before the world existed, this is no small thing. The glory of Christ in prehistory is incomprehensible and it's largely undescribed in the Bible. 
because the Bible concerns itself with creation going forward. Speaking of which, let's start a short tour of the Bible now. Moving from the prehistory glory of Christ, let's have another label. We'll call this one the glory of Christ at creation. The glory of Christ at creation. Turn with me back to Job chapter 38. Job is right before the book of Psalms. And so we want to take a tour of Scripture together and and be familiar with our Bibles. Job chapter 38. Job has suffered tremendously under the mysterious plan of God in which God is now proving to Satan that true worshipers of God will never turn away even in the midst of tremendous pain and trial. But Job made a mistake. He wondered, why me? Why me? And God does not say, well, I I understand you asking that question and I sympathize with you. Instead, God gives Job really the, the longest dressing down and speech in all the Bible given by God to one person. God has wondered, Job has wondered rather, why me? So God reminds Job of the other and complete sovereignty and power of God. And one of the first basic questions that God asked Job is, where were you when I created everything? And in this beautiful treasure, our, our real only peak behind the curtain of creation, God reveals that something marvelous was happening at creation. Job chapter 38, verse 4. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. The morning stars, the sons of God. This is Hebrew parallelism and Hebrew poetry. Speaking of the same thing, this is the angelic realm. The angels singing and shouting as the grand holy audience for the creation of all things. And so as you read through Genesis 1, we need to add Job 38 in here. And God said, let there be light. And there was light singing and shouting. God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters singing and shouting. God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and the dry land appear singing and shouting. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, singing and shouting. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, singing and shouting. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens, singing and shouting. In verse 24 of Genesis 1, God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, more singing and shouting. And then, drum roll please, in all of heaven. And God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them, singing and shouting. But here's the question, to whom with the angels singing and shouting. Colossians 1.16 says, For by him, Christ Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth. And so at creation, he received glory upon glory upon glory, the billions and trillions of angels singing and shouting to the Son of God. We can assign another label, the prehistory glory of Christ, the glory of Christ at creation. Here's another label, the revealed glory of Christ on earth, the revealed glory of Christ on earth. And we're going to kind of ping pong back and forth between testaments here. Turn with me to Matthew chapter three, Matthew chapter three, we'll do an old school uh, Bible drill here. Matthew's gospel is humanity's first introduction to God in the flesh, Jesus Christ on earth. And as Jesus is officially commissioned for his ministry, he's baptized. He is demonstrating that he intends to fully identify with sinners. And by the way, just as our baptism fully identifies us with Christ. And in Matthew 3, verse 16. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. 
Jesus is glorified by God the Holy Spirit and Jesus is glorified by God the Father with a verbal affirmation of the perfection of Christ. Just go a couple of pages over to the end of Matthew 7. The end of Matthew 7. This is the revealed glory of Christ on the earth. Jesus has just finished preaching the Sermon on the Mount and unlike the other teachers of his day, he didn't quote a bunch of other rabbis who agreed with him. Instead, Matthew 7, verse 28, right at the end of the chapter. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. He revealed his glory as one possessing divine knowledge who needed no human affirmation. Very next chapter, Matthew chapter 8, verse 25. After having healed many of every possible disease and affliction jesus is famously asleep in a boat with his disciples in the midst of a storm in matthew 8 25 and they went and woke him saying save us lord we are perishing and he said to them why are you afraid though you have little faith then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea and there was great calm and the men marveled saying what sort of man is this that even winds and sea obey him what sort of man is this well that's simple it's god continuing to have dominion over his creation. It's Christ, as it were, rebuking the sea, saying, get back to where I put you the first time. We could simply keep touring Matthew's gospel to see Jesus' glory and his power over demons, his power to forgive sin. But of course, the most visual display of his glory happened just one time. Turn with me to Matthew 17. And in Matthew 17 we see the record of this display of glory happening with just three witnesses. Matthew 17, verse 1. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him, And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And the voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. I don't know about you. But if I'm Peter, James, and John, the first thing I'm going to want to do is go tell my friends. I just saw Elijah, and I just saw Moses, and I just saw Christ in all of his glory. How eager they would be to run down the mountain and say, guess what we saw? And then verse 9, and as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, tell no one the vision. Oh, until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. Talk about keeping a secret. Turn to Matthew 28. And of course, immediately after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, his glory is represented by his angels. An angel demonstrating that Christ has conquered death, has been made alive, has passed through his grave clothes, has passed through the stone in front of the tomb. And to demonstrate that Jesus was gone, Matthew 28, verse 2. And behold, there was a great earthquake for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it, not to let Jesus out, but to show that he was already gone. In verse three, his appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow because he's representing the glory of the sun. And and for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. And 40 days later, Jesus would ascend into heaven. That's his revealed glory on earth. It's, it's shadowed, but it is revealed. We could add another label. We'll call this one the current glory of Christ in heaven. The current glory of Christ in heaven. Now, we're going to test our metal here as far as turning in our Bibles because we're going to do some fast ones. So turn over to Daniel 7, going back to the, to the Old Testament. Daniel chapter 7. And while you're finding Daniel 7... Let me set up what's about to happen with a couple of other scriptures. The current glory of Christ in heaven might be described as a time of anticipation, a time of waiting. Waiting for what? 
Well, waiting for a coming dominion. Psalm 110 tells us what happened after the ascension of Christ into heaven. King David writes prophetically of his Lord, that is Messiah, being given an invitation by Yahweh, by the Lord. Psalm 110.1, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And then we could think about Psalm 2, which shows a scene in which God the Father tells God the Son to ask for dominion. Psalm 2, beginning in verse 7, I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. That, that is a, a, a crowning formula of, of crowning a king. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. And so since the ascension of Christ into heaven, he waits and he waits all while performing the ministry of intercession on our behalf, but he waits for dominion. But then will come a day. Now get ready. In a minute, we're going to quickly go to the end of the Bible. But on this day in heaven, Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. It's time. Jesus Christ has been given the earth. Now quickly over to Revelation 19 because it happens next. Right after this declaration in which Jesus Christ has been presented before the Ancient of Days, the keys to planet Earth have been given to him, and it's time to get ready. Revelation 19, verse 11, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That's the current glory of Christ in heaven. That's what's getting ready to happen very soon. But now we have to go back one more time to the Old Testament to see is our last label, the coming glory of Christ on earth. Go with me to Psalm 24. Psalm 24, the coming glory of Christ on earth. Psalm 24 prophetically is preparing the world for the second arrival of Jesus Christ. The earlier part of the psalm says that all who would seek the face of God and salvation will receive blessing and righteousness. Christ will have conquered his enemies on the earth. And now Psalm 24 verse 7, Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. The prehistory glory of Christ the glory of Christ at creation, the revealed glory of Christ on earth, the current glory of Christ in heaven, the coming glory of Christ on earth. That's the history of the Son's glory. But if you're wondering if we skipped a part, we did, because now we need to see that His glory was interrupted. We saw the history of the Son's glory, but now we need to look at the interruption of the Son's glory. The interruption of the Son's glory when we looked in Matthew at the revealed glory of Christ on earth, those were just glimpses. Those were just flashes of glory. The, the, the time on earth where he really appeared most like himself, only three people saw it. But in the history of the glory of God, there was a break. There was a pause. 
There was a laying aside of the splendor of his majesty. And so we'd like to spend a little time in Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2 really outlines the depths to which Jesus went to provide salvation for us. The interruption of his glory. Philippians chapter 2, I'll bet some of you have this at least partly memorized. Philippians 2 beginning in verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." This outlines the depths to which Christ went to provide salvation for us. And so we'll just label them the first depth. He denied himself the benefits of deity. Denied himself the benefits of deity. Verse 6 says, Who though he was in the form of God. The form of God. This is a Greek word that means that he has all the essential characteristics of. He has all the essence of something. In other words, all that God is, Jesus is. But who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Uh, Literally, if we were going to give a a wooden translation, did not count, plural, the equalities with God a thing to be grasped. That in every way that God, the Father is God, Jesus is God. God is all-knowing. Jesus is all-knowing. God is all-powerful. Jesus is all-powerful. God is love. Jesus is love. God is perfectly just. Jesus is perfectly just. God is eternal. Jesus is eternal. And we could list attribute after attribute after attribute. All that God is, Jesus is. And so this openly states that Jesus is equal to God. But what does it mean that Jesus did not count the equalities with God a thing to be grasped it means that christ chose not to please himself mankind is dying in his sin and jesus is the answer he didn't view his own comfort and his perfect joy in heaven with his father as more important than obedience to his father listen we have a hard time getting out of a warm bed on a winter morning jesus left heaven And the result was, verse 7, he made himself nothing. He emptied himself. This is an important word. Echinosin in Greek, the the root is kanao, and this is important because it's a theological label. And it means to make empty. It means to deprive one of possessions. And from this word, we have the concept that theologians call the kenosis, the emptying of Christ. What is this? Well, it's not that Jesus gave up being God. He didn't diminish his deity. He didn't diminish his glory, but he concealed his glory. He concealed his glory, and it doesn't mean that Jesus tried to hide who he was. He never did that, but what he did do was he set himself voluntarily on a path he didn't have to walk, and that was a path toward death. And in light of being fully God, to become like one of his own creations is the ultimate in condescension and humiliation. Jesus never ceased having all the divine attributes of God, but he didn't exercise the full extent of those attributes. And yes, in his ministry, we see little glimpses. We see on a limited basis as part of his ministry But he never enjoyed the full, complete glory that is truly his. Instead, he emptied himself. He made himself nothing. He gave up all that heaven had for him. He gave up the riches of heaven. He gave up the worship of heaven. He gave up the comfort of heaven. He gave up the delight of being immediately in the presence of his father. He gave it all up to do what? The second depth, he took the form of a man. First, he denied himself the benefits of deity. And then going farther down, he took the form of a man. Verse 7 says, taking the form of a servant. This is the same as the form of God. Jesus is fully and totally God. He is the form of God. And he is fully and totally human. He is the form of a human being. And he took the form of a doulos, a servant, a slave. A slave owned nothing. 
not even the clothes that he wore. Jesus didn't own anything. He had no house, no land, no gold, no jewels, no horse, nothing that would indicate his wealth. In fact, he was born in a borrowed room. He slept on borrowed hay. When he rode into Jerusalem the week before his crucifixion, he had to ride on a borrowed donkey. He met with his disciples for the Last Supper in a borrowed room, and Jesus was buried in a borrowed tomb. Now, you could borrow a tomb if you're going to get up in three days. So he borrowed the tomb. But this is amazing. Jesus created all things and owned none of them. Even at his death, the last possession he had, his clothing, was divided among those that killed him. Now, he did buy one thing while he was on earth. You. He bought you. And he bought me at the cross. He took the form of a servant, verse 7, being born in the likeness of men. He grew up like any boy. He suffered all the limitations and problems except for sin that any man would suffer. He was trained by his earthly father, Joseph, to be a carpenter. He worked with his hands in a manual labor job. All that we are, he became. Why? Well, Hebrews 2.17 says that he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. In other words, he had to be made like us in all things so that he could pay for our sins as a man being sacrificed for the sins of mankind. In verse 8, and being found in human form, what does this mean? People were familiar with, with Jesus the way we're familiar with one another. In Mark 6, people said of Jesus, is this not the carpenter? Put it this way, Jesus was common. He wouldn't have stood out in a crowd. In fact, Isaiah 53, 2 says he had no appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was just an ordinary man who happened to have an extraordinary mission. So he denied himself the benefits of deity. He took the form of a man, but there's a third depth to which he descended. He came to die as a man dies. He came to die as a man dies. In verse 8, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. This wasn't forced on Jesus. It was completely his choice to obey every facet of his father's plan. And in fact, in John 10, Jesus says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. Jesus volunteered to experience death as a sacrifice on our behalf, to experience the dying process, which can include fatigue, dehydration, renal failure, difficulty breathing, overall physical pain, loss of various muscle control, organs going into great distress as they simultaneously try desperately to keep functioning even while they're shutting down. Now, as finite humans, we tend to not think about it. We don't want to know how we're going to die. We don't want to know when we're going to die or what it will feel like. We just live our lives because that's the only way we can cope. But Jesus knew precisely why, when, how, and what he would feel before he ever left heaven. And he came anyway. He denied himself the benefits of deity. He took the form of a man. He came to die as a man dies, and he descended even further. He came to die the most terrible death imaginable came to die the most terrible death imaginable. He was not only obedient to death, but even death on a cross. In Jesus' day, crucifixion was considered the most excruciating way to die ever invented. It was reserved for criminals not only to torture them for long periods of time, but to completely humiliate them as well. It was invented by the Persians and perfected by the Romans. It was so degrading and painful that even a Roman citizen by law could not be executed by crucifixion and when somebody was crucified generally they were beaten beforehand to a bloody pulp as jesus was whipped with lashes that contained bits of metal or bone at the end his clothes are taken from him and he's completely exposed in in every case he's nailed through his wrists and his feet to a cross and then placed upright and the, the nail 
through the wrist would sever the median nerve, paralyzing the hands. The nail through the feet was positioned so that the knees could be bent at a 45-degree angle. And if the executioner wanted to speed death, the leg bones were broken to make supporting yourself impossible. Jesus' legs were not broken and he suffered the full extent of crucifixion. It began a process of dying that could take between three and eight days. The longest recorded crucifixion took nine days for the victim to die. Because of increasing weakness and inability to support your body weight, the shoulders, elbows, and wrists would dislocate, lengthening your arms by six inches. The prophecy of Christ's crucifixion in Psalm 22 and verse 14 said, All my bones are out of joint. Trying to raise himself up to breathe, the victim would slowly suffocate while the heart worked harder and harder to pump oxygen to the body. Liquid would begin to accumulate in the lungs and all around the heart. Psalm 22 says of Christ, My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. Dizziness and cramps, thirst, sleeplessness, fever, the increasing horror of the approaching moment of death were all part of the experience what some have called advanced psychological trauma. In other words, crucifixion was designed to truly experience in slow motion every aspect of dying. Now in the Old Testament, God instituted animal sacrifice to temporarily or to some degree cover the sins of the one making the sacrifice. But it was an incomplete sacrifice. An animal isn't an equal payment for a human being there would have to be a once-for-all sacrifice of a man. And it would have to be a perfect man. But here's the thing. In the Old Testament, the animal was sacrificed in the most humane way possible with its jugular vein cut quickly, which caused, causes a massive drop in blood pressure to the brain. And so consciousness is lost immediately. But the animal didn't come willingly. But not Jesus. For the first time in all history, We had a willing sacrifice for sin. And not to be sacrificed in a quick, painless, humane manner, but in a humiliating and degrading and incredibly slow and painful manner. And this is the heart of the gospel. 1 Corinthians 5 tells us that God the Father made him who knew no sin to be sin, to take all that sin is onto himself on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And so Jesus descended the depths of denying himself the benefits of deity, taking the form of a man, dying as a man dies, and dying the most terrible death imaginable. But then, Philippians 2 verse 9, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. If he descended all the way down to the depths, now he would ascend to the heights. And the first height is that he was exalted He was exalted. Therefore, there's a result of his obedience all the way to the cross. God has highly exalted him. Exalted is a Greek word that means to be put on a high place. So he's highly put him high. Jesus was raised from the dead. He ascended into heaven in full view of his disciples. And this is when God the Father says to the Son in Psalm 110, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Hebrews 1.3 says, After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. But the heights continue. The second height, he was given the name above every name. We've already read in Revelation 19 that he has a name which no one knows. We examined this recently, so I won't belabor the point, but Revelation 3.12, Jesus speaks of my own new name. Hebrews 1.4 says that Jesus has inherited an excellent name. The implication is it's the new name. Neither Philippians 2 or Revelation 3 or Hebrews 1 tells us what the name is. It's a surprise which awaits us in heaven. But it's a name that will so declare the majesty and the might and the glory and the power and the strength of Jesus Christ. It is a name that is so magnificent that when that name is uttered, every knee in heaven and on earth and under the earth will bow. 
Speaking of which, that's the third height. He's given complete dominion as Lord of all. He's given complete dominion as Lord of all. Christ will return as a conquering king, as the king of all kings, as the Lord of all lords. Revelation 19, he will return with the armies of heaven. He'll slay his enemies. He'll save those living on the earth who worship him. And now Jesus returns, as Psalm 24 says, the king of glory. And for the first time in all history, God will rule the earth as a man. But Jesus won't just have dominion over those who love him. He will have dominion over all. Because our passage here in Philippians says that every knee will bow and the inspired text gives us three groups that as this powerful new name is spoken, those in heaven will bow. Holy angels, saved humans from all the ages. These have been worshiping Jesus as Lord for a long time already. Then they'll get a new surprise to hear this new name. If you know Christ as your Savior, this is already your joy. This is already your privilege to worship the King But not only those in heaven, also those on earth. When Christ returns and begins his thousand year reign on the earth, he will have just decimated all of his enemies. But people who survive the great tribulation will begin to have children again. And Zechariah 14 tells us that at that time, all the earth will bring tribute and worship to Christ for this time. And then those under the earth, fallen angels, unsaved dead who await final judgment, they will be brought to the throne of King Jesus called in Revelation 20, the great white throne, and they will acknowledge his lordship before he judges them. And so although the son's glory was interrupted, it was restored, but with new benefits to him. That's the history of the son's glory, the interruption of the son's glory. Let's see if I can earn my paycheck here. Let's do our one point. The assurance of the Son's glory. The assurance of the Son's glory. Now we can go back to John 17. And now we can see the connection of your assurance of salvation to the glory of Christ. John 17 verse 10. As we begin making this connection, all mine are yours and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. That is a super important word, in them. As we would say in Texas, who is them? Well, all mine are yours, and yours are mine. What is this? This is speaking of a specific group of people. It is a specific group of people. This is why we hold strongly to what theologians call particular atonement. Particular redemption, sometimes called limited atonement. In the Calvinist acronym TULIP, that's the L. We'll start in the negative. Unlimited atonement says that Christ died for everyone in general and no one in particular. It says that his payment at the cross for sin was potential, not actual payment for actual people. When did Jesus Christ pay for your sin? When he was on the cross. It's already paid for. The idea of unlimited atonement, that Christ died for every single human being, has a fatal flaw to it. And that fatal flaw is that it depends on the man-made idea of free will. Listen very, very carefully. Free will is not something we possess. Free will is something we lost as human beings. Before the fall of Adam into sin, humanity was sinless and able not to sin and also able to sin. But as soon as Adam sinned, human nature was terribly altered. And now humanity was not able to avoid sinning. We lost our freedom to not sin. Romans 8, 7 and 8 says, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, listen to this, it cannot Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Mankind is now too rebellious to even have a chance to please God. That's why when somebody says, well, I'll do good things, it's too late. You're way past that. We're 7,000 years past that. You cannot please God. 
And so because we cannot please God, God graciously saves, not through so-called free will, but through his initiative. Listen, God created spiritual light in your heart. 2 Corinthians 4 says that. God caused your spiritual rebirth. 1 Peter 1 says that. God caused your spiritual life. Ephesians 2 says that. God granted you the ability to repent. 2 Timothy 2 says that. And God gave you the gift called faith. Philippians 1 says that. But here, Jesus has said, I am glorified in them, a specific group. How is Christ glorified in all who would believe in him, all who have been selected? Well, two very simple ways that Christ is glorified in you and in me. First, we have followed him on his path. We have followed him on this path. And this is so important. Look with me at verse 22. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them. Now, remember, we, we did a comparison of verse 1 and verse 5, the glory of Christ. In verse 1, the glory of Christ is to go all the way to the cross, to be obedient unto death. That is the glory. That's the same glory that's spoken of here in verse 22. The pathway to glory given to Christ was through the cross. And for us, our pathway to the glory given to Christ is through the cross. Galatians 2.20, I have been what? Crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And so when he says, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them, he says, I have given them the opportunity and the means and the ability and the desire to die with me. This is why right over here when we set up our baptistry and we put water in it and when I take your head and put it under water, it is a symbol of putting you in the grave with Jesus. But then, of course, coming up out of the grave with him as well. But Christ is glorified because you have followed him all the way to the cross. But there's a second way that you glorify him. A little easier to understand Verse 24, we'll follow him to his home. We'll follow him to his home. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. How long do you think it will take you to get tired of seeing the glory of Christ? I think the biblical answer is never. It'll be forever and ever. Listen, this is the whole point. Jesus Christ has been promised by God a group of people, a specific group, an actual group, not a potential group, an actual list of names of people who will follow him into glory and behold all that he is. So you may have assurance of salvation because Christ will be glorified by you seeing his glory. And since this scene of his glory can't be a, a potential group, it has to be an actual group, then you as a follower of Christ are part of that actual group. Now, have you noticed something? That once again, our salvation is much less about us and much more about God, about God receiving glory and honor, about the Son of God showcasing his glory to countless followers. Let me put it in very, very simple terms. If you are fearful and you have no assurance of salvation, could I encourage you to have assurance and it has nothing to do with you, but you're to have assurance because you're on the roll call of those who will be called to behold the glory of Christ and to give him honor and to shout and to sing and to praise his name. And God's not going to let you get crossed off that list because he's already promised to glorify his son. And so, see, your assurance has very little to do with you. It has everything to do with Christ. Amen? And how did Christ accomplish this? He accomplished it by laying his glory aside for a time. I love the hymn, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, because it is theologically rich. It speaks of the hidden glory of Christ. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity,
Mild he lays his glory by. Born that man no more may die. Born to raise the sons of earth. Born to give them second birth. It's no wonder Hebrews 2.3 calls God's redemptive plan such a great salvation. Because the way we measure greatness is not what salvation does for us, but what our salvation does for Christ and for His glory. By the glorification of Jesus Christ and the countless kingdom citizens, including those in this room, given to Him for one specific purpose, and that is to be an audience for the glory of Christ for all eternity. To join the angels who shout and sing His glory. Could I say this? Come to Christ. Glorify Him by bending your knee and confessing that He's your Lord. Will you glorify Him by confessing that you have violated all of God's holiness, all of His standards? James 2 verse 10 says that if you have violated one of God's laws, you are guilty of all of them. And there is only one solution and that is to bend the knee to Jesus Christ. You have two choices. You may bend the knee to Christ now out of love and out of receiving His mercy or when the name that is above every name is named, you will bend the knee to Christ because He forces you to your knees shortly before casting you into the lake of fire. But you will bend to Christ. Boy, it'd be a lot easier to do it now, wouldn't it? Would you glorify Christ by coming to Him? Be there to see Christ's glory. Don't look in the rearview mirror at the glory of Christ as the last sight you ever see before entering into judgment. Be there to see his glory. I don't know about you, but knowing I'm on the list of those that have been assigned to behold the glory of Christ gives me great assurance, and I hope it does for you as well. Let's pray. Our Father, we are assured and we are thankful that you have chosen a group of people to behold the glory of Christ for all eternity and we get to be in that group. And Lord, I would pray for a man or a woman who is here today who is still on the path of glorifying your wrath and your fury and your holiness against sin. And I pray, Lord, for them that they would bend the knee, that they would confess their sins, that they would confess that they have violated every commandment of God, that they have violated all the holiness of God that they have lied, they have stolen, they have cheated, they have been adulterers, they have been all the things the scripture says will get them a one-way ticket to hell. Let this be the day that the Spirit of God would move in their hearts to receive Jesus Christ and therefore become part of those who would behold His glory for all time and all eternity. We pray for Christ's glory. Amen.